Would you please turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 2, the Gospel of Matthew chapter 2. It's uh, the very first book in the New Testament, the Gospel of Matthew. Once again, Merry Christmas. Uh, If you would all please join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, we praise and we thank you for the privilege of being here this morning to worship our Lord Jesus Christ, the King of the Jews, the Lord of the nations. And I pray, O Lord God, that you would give us ears to hear, that you would open the eyes of our hearts to see and behold His glory, the glory of your Son, our Lord Jesus. I pray that even as we hear your word, that you would call sinners to repentance, that you would cause us to grow in grace. Show us Christ this morning. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Right, so I have a little quiz for us. As we think about the Christmas story this morning, a few questions. Yes, you can have a little group discussion, parents with your children or with your friends around you, and let's see how many of these you get right. All right, you heard the story read to us from Luke. We're about to hear it from Matthew. Many of you have been celebrating Christmas for ages. Let's have a little fun. So, first question is this, how did Mary travel to Bethlehem? What was her mode of transportation? You can discuss. I heard everyone say here, donkey, Mary rode a donkey, and if that's your answer, then I'm not sure that you're right, (laughs) because the Bible doesn't say that Mary rode a donkey. It's possible they walked, and she was probably a pretty tough lady because she's, you know, pregnant, and that was a long walk, but it doesn't tell us that they traveled on a donkey. In fact, we know from Scripture that Mary and Joseph were poorer. They couldn't even afford, uh, you know, the sacrificial lamb for the offering in the temple. They they bought turtle doves, so they probably didn't have a donkey. They probably walked. Uh, second, Second question, second question. Why was Jesus, after he was born, laid in a manger? Go ahead. All right. You know, a lot of people are going to think, well, this was because the cruel and heartless innkeeper turned them away. They saw this couple... And he saw she was pregnant and said, like, there's no room here for you. Out you go. Well, again, I'm sorry to burst your bubble. There is no innkeeper in the story, all right, if you paid attention when it was just read. But that leads us to another question, right? Where was Jesus born? Where was Jesus born? Go ahead. But by now you're thinking, well, whatever I guess, I'm going to be wrong, so I might as well stop playing this game. And if you said he was born in a barn or a stable, and it was because there was no room at the inn, 
Well, again, I'm not persuaded that you're right. Uh, because if you're looking at the original text, the word there in Luke translated in uh, probably didn't mean in in the original. It's very unlikely that Bethlehem even had an inn. Uh, in fact, it's, the word is best translated as one of my predecessors, Pastor Cam Aronson, used to argue. It's best translated guest room or upper room. In fact, that's the way that Luke translates it elsewhere in the gospel. So there, and if you look at the footnote in your Bible, you'll actually catch that. Catch that. You should read the footnotes, by the way. Uh, it says there was no room in the guest room or upper room for them. So Jesus was born, believe it or not, probably in Joseph's family house, not in a stable. And then why this manger over there? Well, the manger is a feeding trough for animals, and in the ancient world in those days, the way that houses were constructed, you had an adjacent room at the bottom floor where the animals were. And so all of these people have come back to Bethlehem. The house is probably packed. There's no room in the guest room for Mary to give birth. She gives birth downstairs in the family room and lays Jesus in the manger, in the feeding trough, uh, where the animals next door come to feed. Okay, here's another one for you. Maybe you'll get this one right. Where was the star on the night that Jesus was born? Yeah. Someone said, up in the sky. That's accurate. I'm sorry to bust up your favorite nativity scene, but no, the star was not above the manger on the night that Jesus was born. We'll come to the reason why, but this one's going to shock you, the last one. This is, this is the last question. How many kings were there on the night of Jesus' birth? How many kings were there on the night of Jesus' birth? All right, someone says five, someone says one, all right, the, someone says two, well, the, some, some people looking at the bulletin, right, and saying two, there you go, someone says three, well, the answer is, there was one on the night of his birth, right, present right there, and that was our Lord Jesus Christ himself, and, you know, you probably, and I'm sure the first answer that came to your mind was three, Right? Because we three kings of Orient are bearing gifts, we've traveled so far. Well, number one, they weren't kings. Okay? They were not kings, even in spite of that uh, very popular and beloved carol. And uh, in spite of your nativity scene, which has all the shepherds and the animals and the kings all there together. No, they weren't there then. They came and visited much later. So they weren't kings. They visited much later. And finally, there were not three, right? They had three gifts, but they were not three kings. We know that there were a plural, plurality of them. There were more than one, right? Uh, there could have been two. There could have been 12, as, you know, one Eastern tradition states. There could have been 20. We don't know. But as we read this story of the visit of the men from the East you will see 
that the story did have two kings. The true king and a false king. And in fact, as we look at Matthew chapter 2, the entire story emphasizes the contrast between these two kings. The theme of kingship is very significant in this story. If, if you look there at Matthew chapter 2 and verse 1, you'll notice, look, look at how many times the word king is used. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king. You see that? Uh, verse 2, they came saying, where is he who has been born? King of the Jews. Yeah, you can say it with me. Verse 3, when Herod the king heard this. And then again, if you skip down to verse 9, after listening to the king, they went on their way. The whole story emphasizes the contrast between two kings. And throughout this story, the gospel writer, Matthew, invites us to take the journey to Bethlehem. And he asks us how we are going to respond to the one who has been born, the true king of the Jews and the king of the nations. How will you respond to Jesus? So with that, let's read Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 to 12. This is God's holy word. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, Behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy, and going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. We are invited by Matthew, the author of this gospel, to take this journey to Bethlehem. And he's asking us, which one is your king? How are you going to respond to Jesus, the King of the Jews? We're going to answer that question by going through the story and looking at these two kings. The first one, of course, is the promised king. The promised king. Look at verses 1 and 2. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, 
Behold, wise men came from the east to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. Now, this is not the night of Jesus' birth. This is probably taking place some time after that. Uh, could be six months to a year to up to two years. Because if you come later in the story, uh, Herod com commands that all the children under two years of age are killed. So Jesus could have been anywhere between a month old to up to two years old. And look who is coming to visit him. Behold, wise men, the text says, from the east came to Jerusalem. And if you look at the footnote in your Bible... You'll see it says, Magi, Magi from the east. So these guys were not kings. Uh, I think wise men is a very tame kind of way of describing them. Uh, the word Magi, you might wonder what that means. It comes from the Greek, Magoi, which means magician. It's the same word from which you get the English word magic. Uh, they were astrologers, pagan astrologers. Uh, they were men who kind of did dark magic and looked at the stars and, and, and the movements of the sun and the moon and the stars to try and figure out things. They were guys who were all about, you know, reading and writing the daily horoscope. And they are from the east and they recognize that this king of the Jews is to be born. And probably what we're seeing here is the word of God at work in this pagan context. Because you see, if they were from the east, they could have been from Babylon, or, you know, which is now modern-day Iraq. They could have been further in Persia from Iran, or they could have been, some scholars think, from Arabia, from right here. Guys from the Arabian Gulf coming to see Jesus. And you might remember that the Jews were taken into exile hundreds of years before, there was a Jewish community in these regions, in Babylon especially. Uh, there was a prophet of the Israelite people named Daniel who lived in that context, who foretold of one like a son of man who will come and receive all authority in heaven and on earth. And that prophecy probably was transmitted down the ages. Many scholars believe that what these astrologers are responding to is Daniel's prophecy of a king who would come. And it says, you know, they're out there in the east. They come to Jerusalem. They come having seen his star. They say, we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. So here God miraculously, providentially is guiding them through this star. They are men who watch the stars. Uh, many throughout church history, many theologians and interpreters have uh, considered that this star was probably not just an ordinary star, but was possibly an angel guiding these men. This was an angel bringing them to this place, and they were looking at this angel, angelic being in the form of a star, and following it. And, and they come there and they ask the question, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? Notice they don't ask, where is he who will be king of the Jews? The one who was born to be king of the Jews. No, he is a king in his birth. He was born king. And like any outsiders, they come to this land and they're going straight to the capital. Notice they don't go to Bethlehem. They go to Jerusalem. 
because that's the power center. That's the capital. That's where you would expect the king to be born, in a palace. That's where you would expect the king to have his throne and reign from. They come expecting the king of the Jews. And here in his birth, you will see that Jesus fulfills so many of the Old Testament scriptures. Matthew wants us to see that. He, he wants to highlight that for us. And the first is his birthplace, that he's born not in Jerusalem, but in Bethlehem. So the wise men come in verse 2, they ask, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose, we've come to worship him. And then notice verses 3 and following, when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And they told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And they quote here from Micah chapter 5, with which we started our service this morning. And you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. The Old Testament has for long prophesied of this king who would come. A king from the line of David. That's why he's born in Bethlehem. Israel's rightful ruler, king, and lord. The king who will establish God's people in peace and will shepherd them in his ways. And, and here the uh, gospel writer Matthew, he shows us that there are two prophecies kind of joined together. Micah chapter 5 and verse 2 and 2 Samuel 5 and verse 2. He will be the shepherd of my people Israel. Jesus is this son of David, this promised king to be born in Bethlehem. And there's still more of the Old Testament, of the scriptures that are fulfilled in Jesus' birth. Think of this, what these men say. They say, we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. And if you go way back in the Old Testament uh, to this strange story of another pagan astrologer who was called to actually curse God's people, Israel, and then God works to bless his people through this strange man named Balaam. And if you go to his, one of his prophecies in Numbers chapter 24 and verse 17, this pagan astrologer, God working through him, says, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. Matthew wants, to see, wants us to see that this is fulfilled in Jesus and his coming. And consider where these guys come from. They come from the east, these magi, from the nations. Again, Matthew wants us to see that Jesus is not only the son of David, he is the son of Abraham, the promised son of Abraham. And, and God had promised Abraham, in you all nations will be blessed. And they are blessed in him. Jesus has come to bring blessing to the nations. So these guys go to Herod. Herod gets very disturbed and rattled. We'll talk more about that in a little while. He calls the religious leaders wants to find out where the Christ is supposed to be born. These guys know their Bibles well. They say, oh, he's supposed to be born in Bethlehem. And then Herod calls these wise men or magi in secret, and he tells them, hey, I want to worship him too. So why don't you go out 
find him, and then come back, tell me where he is, so that I too can come and worship him. Herod has a secret plan. He wants to kill and destroy the true king of the Jews. And again, you see opposition in Jesus' life right from the beginning. As you keep reading the story, you'll see that the wise men are warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, so they leave. And then Joseph is warned in a dream to flee to Egypt, and Herod goes completely crazy. He has all the young children, young boys, two and under, slaughtered. And over there, even as Jesus goes to Egypt, and then later comes out of Egypt and back into the land, as Herod slaughters all these young boys, we are seeing the Old Testament being fulfilled and repeated. We are seeing Scripture being reenacted in the life of Jesus. Because Herod now takes on the role of Pharaoh. And Jesus is God's true son, the true Israel. Herod takes on the role of the seed of the serpent. Jesus is the seed of the woman. And that conflict which goes all the way back to Genesis 3.15 is being fulfilled in Jesus' life. The story of the Exodus is being fulfilled in Jesus' life. He is the son of David. He is the son of Abraham. He is the seed of the woman. Well, keep reading. Verses 9 and following. After listening to the king that is these magi, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went, went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold, and frankincense, and myrrh. And they bring him these gifts. And again, the Old Testament is being fulfilled. As Matthew wants us to see here that what is happening is what was prophesied in Isaiah chapter 60, verses 3 and following. Nations shall come to your light, Isaiah chapter 60, verse 3, and kings to the brightness of your rising. So maybe because Isaiah chapter 60, verse 3 says kings shall come, and we're seeing that passage fulfilled here, maybe that's why people sing we three kings. Right? Even though they're actually magi here. But keep reading that passage. Lift up your eyes all around and see. They all gather together. They come to you. Your son shall come from afar and your daughter shall be carried on the hip. They shall see and be radiant. Your heart shall thrill and exult because the abundance of the sea shall be turned to you. The wealth of the nations shall come to you. A multitude of camels shall cover you. The young camels of Midian and Ephah. All those from Sheba shall come. They shall bring gold and frankincense and shall bring good news, the praises of the Lord. You can go home and read Psalm 72. It's a great Christmas reading and you'll see several lines of verse from that psalm are fulfilled here as well. What is Matthew trying to tell us? What is the story emphasizing? It's saying this is him. This is he who was long foretold. This is the Son of God upon whom the hopes of the nations rest. Here in this baby is David's greater son, Israel's greater Moses, Abraham's promised offspring, God's appointed shepherd, the offspring of the woman, the hope of the nations has arrived. 
And the birth of Jesus Christ fulfills all the promises of the scriptures. Here is the hope of Israel. Here is the hope of the nations. He is the king of the Jews and he is king of the world. He is David's son and David's Lord. The worship of the nations belong to him. This is the one we've long been waiting for. And these pagan astrologers come from far, far away. Maybe over a thousand kilometers away, traveling over hard terrain, they come to pay homage to this promised king. But how do his own people respond? What's the buzz in the capital city in Jerusalem at the birth of the king? They respond with rejection. And it starts with the wicked guy, the pretender king, on the throne. And so now we look at the second king in this story. We saw the promised king. Now we see the pretender king. And he's introduced in verse 1. Verse 1 tells us, this is taking place in the days of Herod, the king. Now, if you read the New Testament, you'll see this name Herod pop up again and again and again. There are actually four different Herods in the New Testament, okay, in case you didn't know that. And this is the first of them. This was a man called Herod the Great. Uh, he was not an Israelite. He was actually an Edomite or a Dumian. So he was not a legitimate king for the people of Israel. He was actually put in power by the Romans at around 40 BC, 40 years earlier. And he was a wicked and cruel tyrant. He was very oppressive to the people he ruled over. And he was very insecure because naturally he knows he's not the legitimate king. He's not a legitimate king. So he was doing all that he could to safeguard his reign. He was a totally paranoid kind of guy. So he regularly killed his leading officials, often without cause. At one time, he had over 300 of his leading officials all massacred at once. He killed his favorite wife, his mother-in-law, and three of his own sons. One historian has said of Herod the Great, it was safer to be one of Herod's pigs than one of Herod's family members. That's how ruthless this man was. And the wise men, the magi, they come to him. They ask, where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? Verse 3, when Herod the king, pretender king, heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. You know that word troubled is kind of very soft to describe this. The original word is much, much stronger. More likely, better translated, he was deeply disturbed. He was shaken to the point of trembling and all Jerusalem with him. And he assembles all the chief priests, the scribes, the religious leaders. He says, where was Christ born? And then these religious leaders who know their Bibles very well feed Herod the information that he needs to go kill the one who threatens his reign. And, and not only... This, not only is he paranoid, insecure, he's also a deeply deceptive man. Uh, you'll notice he tricks the Magi. He fools them. Right? Verse 7, he summons them for this clandestine secret meeting. Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. So he knows kind of like the timeline. 
He knows the place prophesied in the scriptures, Bethlehem. What he doesn't know is where exactly in Bethlehem. So he sends these magi on their way. And he said to them, he, sa- he sent them to Bethlehem. He says, go search diligently for the child. And when you found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. And he doesn't send a convoy with them. He doesn't want to arouse suspicion. These guys are taken in. They're deceived. In fact, they don't know until in verse 12, God himself sovereignly, supernaturally intervenes and warns them in a dream not to go back to Herod, and so they go home another way. If you keep reading the story, you will see the outcome of this. Herod gets enraged. Verse 16, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, he became furious and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under according to the time he had ascertained from the wise men. There was great grief as a result. But even in that, the scripture was being fulfilled. Friends, God is sovereign. God Almighty is seated on his throne. Jesus Christ is his appointed king. And in his sovereignty, he protected Jesus from this maniac pretender king, even at his birth. Nothing can come in the way of God's plans. No king or ruler or earthly authority can stand against the Lord of the heavens and the earth. Neither Herod nor the chief priests nor the scribes can prevent God's redemptive purposes from unfolding. His will, His purposes will come to pass. You know, you might know that the most famous painting in the world is the Mona Lisa. Uh, What you might not know is the same artist, Leonardo da Vinci, also painted what is known as one of the most famous unfinished paintings in the world. It's called a non-finito. These are unfinished paintings. Uh, This was painted in 1481, and it is called The Adoration of the Magi. The Adoration of the Magi. Leonardo was commissioned to paint it, And he got well into the work, but about a year after, he had to leave and go to a different town, and so he left it unfinished. And if you look at this painting, it depicts the scene of the worship of Jesus by the Magi, but the backdrop depicts violence and chaos. And uh, scholars of art say that Da Vinci even painted himself into the scene, in the right corner. He's there watching the adoration of the Magi and the violence and the chaos behind it. Friends, as we celebrate Christmas, as we think of the Magi coming and worshiping Jesus, as we behold the glory of Christ, we do so against a backdrop of a world that is marred by the sinful rebellion of human beings to God's rule and reign. We live in a world that, like Herod, and just like Jerusalem, stands deeply disturbed. Where violence and chaos reign, or seem to reign. And as you uh, stand here, and uh, as you, like Leonardo, behold this scene, the gospel writer Matthew wants to ask you and me, as we behold 
how we're going to respond. How are we going to, be, going to respond to the one who has been born king of the Jews? You know, we see one response of one group of people in the story, the chief priests and the scribes and the whole populace of Jerusalem. Their response was rejection. Think about this. These guys are the Bible scholars of the day. They know the Old Testament. Many of them had it memorized. Herod calls them in and he inquires, where is the Christ to be born? And they say, oh, that's an easy question. Micah 5 too. He's going to be born in Bethlehem. But they don't make the journey to Bethlehem. Pagan astrologers came from afar. The priests and the scribes and the people of Israel who know Micah's prophecy, who have heard that the king has been born, don't go to pay homage to this king. They reject him. And maybe that's the response that you've been living with, dear friend, to the rule and reign of King Jesus. You know, these guys in Jerusalem, they remind me of many Christians no, I didn't say non-Christians. I said Christians. Many Christians who claim that Jesus is their Lord. But just like they don't make the journey to Bethlehem, which was actually quite far, many Christians won't even make the 10 kilometers journey to church on the Lord's Day. We show up once a year. And maybe that's why you're here this morning. You know, we, many Christians who claim to know Christ or have grown up in a Christian home, maybe you do come to church every week and you sit there and then you stand and sing and pray and close your eyes and make a nice show of things. But Jesus makes no difference in your life. Is He the King of your life? If people were to look at how you live at what you value, at what you treasure. If people were to ask you, what do you trust? What do you lean on? Is it King Jesus? You see, saying that Jesus is King means that there is some discomfort that comes in, isn't there? It means that our comfort, our plans, our best laid plans, our self-rule are all toppled over and we submit to His Lordship and Kingship and rule. Is your response to Jesus one of indifference and rejection like these people in Jerusalem? Or maybe it even intensifies a little bit more. Even as I'm speaking right now and you're beginning to squirm there, maybe your response intensifies. You have a more intense response to Jesus' claim as King. Maybe it's not just rejection, but it's also rage. That's what we see with Herod here. His response to Jesus is one of rage. Who is this king who dares to challenge my rule? He resists God's rule. He's working in paranoia and he's, he's scheming. He's insecure. He's threatened. He's trying to safeguard his own interests and sinful desires. And don't we often do the same? Maybe that's you, dear friend, resisting the rule of Christ the King in your life, living in paranoia, insecurity, trying to safeguard your own interests, 
your own sinful desires. You, you don't feel comfortable with Jesus as king because you are in fact threatened by Jesus' kingship. You don't want to bow the knee to him as Lord because it means that you will no longer be on your own throne of your life. Ah, oh, well, pastor, you know, maybe I don't want to reject Jesus or I'm not really enraged. Can't I just have Jesus as, as a nice guy, a wise teacher, a good prophet, somebody who carries the little lambs and he'll just bless me if I'm okay with him? Here's the problem, dear friend. Jesus doesn't give you that option. Jesus comes into this world and into our lives as king. And that means he demands all of you, not just one part of your life. Everything belongs to him. As one person put it, Jesus is a real threat to anyone and everyone who thinks seriously about him. If Jesus is king, then you're not. So what are we left with then? If our response is not going to be rejection or rage, how are we called to respond? How does Matthew want us to respond? How does the gospel want us to respond? Well, we are called to emulate the response of these magi. I, I told you that they're more properly called magi or astrologers or magicians than wise men. But they were really wise, weren't they? By the grace of God. Their response is not rejection or rage. Their response is reverence. They reverently receive Jesus as king. And they do so because they are recipients of God's grace. Think about whom we're talking about. These are unworthy pagan sinners. They're the guys who are messing with astrology and with dark magic and with all those things which God has banned in the Old Testament. They're not, you know, some kind of spiritually elite dudes. They are sinners like you and me. These are those who are the least likely to be a part of God's kingdom. And yet they are recipients of God's grace who respond in reverence to King Jesus by grace. Those who were once ensnared in darkness, those who were captive to the elementary principles of the world following the sun, moon, and stars, those who were in bondage to Satan, those who are dwelling in darkness have seen a great light and they become the first Gentile worshippers of King Jesus. Friends, the king of the Jews is the king of the world. And at the very start of his life, the ends of the earth are drawn to worship him. And in showing us that these men from the nations were coming and bowing down before Jesus, Matthew is saying the, the way is open for us from the nations to come and fall down and worship our king. How does Jesus do that? How does God do that? How is the way made clear for sinners from the nations to be cleansed of sin and to worship this king. And the answer there is right there in our passage. You see they call him in verse 2. The king of the Jews. The Magi who come to worship Jesus. Say where is he who has been born king of the Jews. No that phrase reappears in Matthew's gospel. It doesn't show up anywhere else in this gospel. Except at the very end of the gospel. 
in Matthew chapter 27. When Matthew is telling us about the cross. You see, the rejection of Jesus by the religious leaders and by Herod and by the people of Jerusalem, that begins this theme of rejection and opposition that go with him all through his life. Jesus is a suffering king and a suffering savior, despised and rejected, a man of sorrows, and it culminates with him being nailed to a cross with a sign over his head that says, King of the Jews. As one person said, the crown that they gave him was made of thorns and his throne was a cross. Instead of a bright star, there was an unearthly darkness. Think about it. The homage that they pay him is mocking the soldiers at the end. You see other Gentiles mocking, bowing down to him and mocking him. The homage that they pay this king is mocking and spitting and beating. And there at the cross, instead of God's protection, Jesus, the king of the Jews, experienced God's wrath in all its fury. The same God who protected him from Herod now pours out wrath upon him on the cross. And yet it was all in the perfect plan of our sovereign God. See, Matthew has told us at the very beginning. Matthew chapter 1 and verse 21. We are told that he shall be called Jesus because he comes to save his people from their sins. This is the king who has come to save his people, to save the nations, to save the magi, to save sinners, to save Jews and Gentiles, to save those lost at the ends of the earth, to save you and me. And he does so by his cross because on the cross he pours out his blood, taking upon himself the penalty for sins that we deserve. And he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven where he now is crowned King and Lord of heaven and earth, and he summons us to come to him and promises us the forgiveness of sins and eternal life if you trust him. So won't you respond, dear friend, like the Magi? Should not we respond, dear brothers and sisters, with reverence and receive him as our king? And even as we receive him, he summons us through this passage into joy. Hey, did you see their response in verse 9 as the Magi came and saw him? Verses 9 and 10. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And we too are invited into that joy. We too are invited to rejoice exceedingly with great joy at what God has done for us in Christ. I don't know what you're going through this Christmas. I know Christmas is not always a happy, clappy, jolly time for everybody. Maybe for some of you, it's the loss of someone you love. Maybe for others, it's a chronic illness you're battling. Maybe for some of you, it's just a dark fight with depression and gloom. For some of you, it's just this ongoing battle with sin in a weary and hard world. I mean, Christmas is hard for some of us. I 
Three years ago, I remember Christmas, I was singing hymns to my dad four days before he died of cancer. But friends, Jesus gives us a joy that goes beyond all our trials, that pierces through the darkness like light, that shines into our hearts and overwhelms our soul, a joy that extends beyond this life into eternity. That joy can be yours in Christ. He summons us into joy. Our King summons us into worship. Into worship. Did you see verse 11? They saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. And opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. Friends, we too must fall down and worship the one who commands the allegiance of the nations. We too must open our treasures and bring him gifts. God has given us the greatest gift that there is, his only son to save us from our sins. And he calls us to bring him gifts, the gifts of our lives, submitted to his lordship and lived out for his glory. Would you give him your life? Would you worship this king? He summons us to joy. He summons us to worship. And he summons us to proclaim. To proclaim his kingship. Think about this. The first Gentile worshippers of Jesus were these magi. Gentile sinners from far away who came following a star. And as we come to the end of Matthew's gospel, we'll see that the nations far and wide are summoned to worship this king. But not through a star. No, they're summoned through our mission, through our proclamation. And there is this promise that sinners from east and west and all nations will be blessed through him and will come into the kingdom of this glorious king. As we sing joy to the world, we're not just singing of the first coming of Christ, we're singing of the second coming of Christ. That was why that song was originally written, that one day there will be joy forever and the curse will forever be removed. And we summon people to worship this king now as we look forward to that second coming, and He promises us, He promises us His presence. You see, there's one other name given to Jesus at His first coming. In Matthew chapter 1, Matthew tells us, He shall be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. And don't miss, that's the beginning of the gospel. Don't miss the very end of Matthew's gospel when Jesus says to his disciples, the one who is called Emmanuel, God with us, says to you and me, dear Christian, he says this. Notice what the king says. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given unto me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey all that I have commanded. And behold, I am with you 
even to the end of the age. God with us says, I'm with you. So let's go and proclaim His reign. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for our great and glorious King. We pray that we would respond to Him as you call us to, with joy and worship and proclamation to the ends of the earth so that He might receive the worship of which He is worthy. Help us do so this Christmas and always. It's in His name we pray. Amen.